on. Okay, so uh, what I want, uh, first, let me say that although many of my friends were shocked, how can you talk with him, no? Traitor and so on. I nonetheless think that uh, there are antagonisms, but as we may say as old Maoists, all our antagonisms are not antagonisms between people and the enemies of people. Some are within the people to be resolved through dialogue. So let me be quite frank. A couple of points I agree with you. First, I totally agree with your basic reading, which to shock you is also a reading of your probably enemy Alain Badiou, namely <laughs> that it's wrong to read these riots as some kind of a Islamic fundamentalism or what. You were totally right. The problem is purely that of exclusion, inclusion. Basically, it was an attempt of what we are old enough, unfortunately, to remember the great era of structuralism, Jakobson, the so-called thesis of Fatic communication, where the point of the message is the message itself. The message was, hey, we are here, we want to be included, or whatever. There was no, there was no deeper demand, but nonetheless, this makes me a little bit sad. Is it, it is as if, for me, maybe I'm wrong, you can correct me, the, the, this is for me like the last uh, nail in the coffin of 68, in the sense of, after all those utopian project, now you have just this zero-level protest. So, protest without a program. So, can I do something to transcribe to this briefly where I see how could this have happened after 68, the limitation of 68? Is this the part where you disagree? No, here I think up to a point we would even agree. Don't be afraid, there will be disagreements at the end. <laughs> I also want to read a poem, a beautiful poem. Okay. Short one, don't be afraid. Let me read it. <laughs> Convert to my new faith, O crowd. I offer you what no one has had before. I offer you inclemency and wine. The one who won't have bread will be fed by the light of my son. People, nothing is forbidden in my faith. There is loving and drinking and looking at the sun for as long as you want. And this Godhead forbids you nothing. Oh, obey my call, brothers, people, crowd. I hope you got the joke. The author of this poem is Radovan Karadzic, who is now in Hague. And I think there is, if we want to understand where we are today, all the cases of so-called fundamentalist violence. I think there is a very important message here, which is the utter stupidity of the usual sociological cliche, which says something like, you know, people have too much freedom today, we are in a society of choice where you have to choose everything, your sex and so on. So people feel insecure, they look for old values, firm coordinates, so they run back into some traditional system. I visited Belgrade in the early 90s and by chance met in a cafeteria, it was a horrible encounter, some people who probably were so-called ethnic slaughterers. And they gave me a lesson of my lifetime. They told me, no, are you crazy? They told me, no, it's modern democratic society, which is for us, oppressive, over-regulated. They told me, you, um, as a man, you are not free. You see a beautiful woman, you cannot rape her. You cannot beat your wife. You cannot steal. You cannot kill an enemy and so on. And they made it very clear to me that the experience of becoming a nationalist, 
was for them a kind of a perverted fake liberation. And to come back to the riots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I. He, he, Paul wants fight and order. Fight and order. That is, is a program. Is that too, too much to ask for? To come back to which riots? To the riots of 2005. I think that they represent something that I'm tempted to call uh, Malevich in politics. You know, Malevich, the reduction to a minimal difference, like uh, 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 I think it's black square on white surface or whatever. It's kind of a zero-level politics, which is why I claim they are even formally similar to what people call uh, the so-called flash mobs, you know. You just collect, you do a certain gesture, and I think it's a sad monument. It tells something about our state of things if the situation in which we are is that the only protest that we can afford a more radical form is this kind of empty gesture of just saying no without any uh, positive project. But nonetheless, to go back to your point, I think that it's precisely this, as it were, closure, which well, then opens up you, the you, space you, you, for... I mean, to remind you of what you wrote in the book, you yeah. speak about hermeneutic temptation, the hermeneutic temptation to try to interpret the riots of 2005, and your interpretation is that everybody got it wrong. No, but I was basically paraphrasing what he was saying, which is that it's wrong to look at this as a specific group with specific demands and translate it into concrete demands, like we want more, I don't know, education, social services, or whatever. No, as we both know, the first thing these young people burned were their own mosques and community centers and so on and so on. So le let's go backwards in time if we could, since we're celebrating in some form or fashion 40 years of May 68. No. Now you are moving back to my terrain, yeah. Okay, sorry, yeah. <laughs> sorry. No, 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 please. No, no, you go on, you go on, yeah. I, I think we, we, it's a fair question to ask you both uh, how you view the legacy of 1968, how you understand it, how retrospectively now you interpret it. Bernard, let's start with you. You write about it in that chapter that I of quoted course, with Victor Hugo. Um, in that chapter and in other chapters, when I, there is a part of the book where, where I, try, I try to retrace the history of my, the intellectual history of my generation, and one of the important steps, stages of this history is May 68. For me, May 68 is a very key, important, unique event. For many reasons, for at least two or three reasons. Number one, it was the first time in May 68 where people said, the old Communist Party about the revolution always said, not here, not today, and not you. Not here, in Cuba, in China, in Soviet Union. Not today, tomorrow, the tomorrow which will sing. Not you, uh, simple students, simple workers, but the Bolshevik party. May 68 was the first time this was part of the uniqueness of the event when a, some, a crowd of youngsters said, here, now, and us here in France. Now, at this very moment, without waiting anything, no tomorrow who, who sings, and us, not the party, all of us, number one. 
Number two, the originality of May 68 is that it was a sort of reversal in act of the old philosophy, uh, political philosophy. It happens that a whole tr philosophical tradition can be reversed by an event. The old philosophical tradition said what is uh, asked the question of the relationship between those who govern and those who are governed. Should we reverse the relationship? Should we reform the relationship? Would the people who are governed take the place of those who govern? And so on and so on. This was the political question since Aristotle to, uh, to Hegel, to the dialectical of uh, the slave and the master. May 68, for me, was the first time during a few weeks when it was said, we want a world where there is the very relationship explodes. The very relationship is suppressed. A, a universe, a world of pure, to, to speak it again in the categories of the philosophy and uh, of Spinoza, for example, a society where there will be no passivity, only activity, where everybody will be activity. Not everybody will be a master. Not everybody will be uh, a chief, no. Everybody will be Gilles Deleuze said pure intensivity, others would say pure affirmation, and so on. This was the second point. And the third point, on which maybe um, we shall disagree, Slavoj and I, is that it was also, I think, the grave and the burial of the, what would I say, of Marxism-Leninism, surely, of the proletarian uh, thematic, probably also. May 68 was the first revolution or attempt of revolution, which had, at the end of the day, nothing to do with the le monde ouvrier, la classe ouvrière, the proletarian class. And you fought in the streets. Yes, but it was, first of all, it was the center of Paris. It was not, as today, uh, the suburbs. The center of Paris, the Paris of Walter Benjamin and of Charles Baudelaire, who was in royals. It was the intellectual petite bourgeoisie. And it was, of course, some uh, workers, uh, the, world, the, the world of the unions, but precisely not the union, not the Communist Party, not the proletariat, as it is embodied by the old institutions of before. The workers which were involved in May 68 were, for example, um, uh, unemployed workers, or uh, fired workers, or the part of the working class which was relied to, which looked like, which has something to do with this petite bourgeoisie intellectuelle. So a very strange event. And the proof of that is that the end of the movement of 68 came when, of course, the left, François Mitterrand and so on, whistled the end of the game, when the right, General de Gaulle, whistled also the, the end. But when the unions said there was a very famous sentence at this time, il faut reprendre la révolution des mains tremblantes des étudiants. We have to take over the revolutionary dream from the shivering hands of the students. <coughs> the moment when this was expressed, 
when the common program of the left and the right was to take all these poetic dream of this moment from the, shiv the supposed shivering hands of the students, it was over. It meant that the unions will um, uh, speak with, uh, with the patrona, with the tycoons, with the government, and that the order will come back again in the streets and in the heads. Slavoj, grave you know, or burial? No, I agree vaguely with this diagnosis. But no, 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 I will tell you where I see the problem, just in how to interpret it. The problem I see, I will try to be very frank, is the following one. It's basically the same at a different level as the problem of what happened a couple of months later, August 68 in Prague. The common place is, oh, brutal Soviet invasion, the tanks crushed the spring of the Prague, crushed the hope of the Prague Spring. I claim the opposite. They saved the, the dream. In what sense? Let's be cynical and imagine the Soviet Union would not intervene in Prague. I don't think there was a serious possibility of a new truly democratic socialist country, what, uh, dem uh, state. What would have happened if the Soviet Union were not to in integrate is that either Czechoslovakia would simply have become part of the West or at a certain point like before and after with liberal communist Gomulka, they would have to stop it. I think that paradoxically the very Soviet intervention kept the dream alive. Oh, what would have been if the Soviet Union were not to intervene? And I have the same problem with May 68. My problem is, yes, I agree with what you said, this pure revolution intensity, no party state to take it over, but did it, what was the ultimate possibility into it? Did it really had if the Communist Party wouldn't manipulate or others would allow them, would support them. Do you really think there was a chance of a new society or what? I think no. I think that the lesson for the left is... Do you think no? Do you think there was a possibility for a new society there? Of course not. Yeah. Uh, th there was the possibility of what happened after, which yeah. was a huge intellectual, moral and political reform of France. The world changed in France because of this attempt of 68. The women were more free, the, the gays were more uh, affirmative, the power had less power, uh, the people have, had more rights. It is an important moment for that also, because the, there was a multiplication of rights after May 68 and because of May 68, which we did not see in the last decades. And this is uh, the real product of this miraculous moment, a few weeks of eternal, a few weeks where, because I remember the, this moment well myself, I was 20, 18, 19, 20. It was a moment, maybe because of material conditions, it was the, mom, the, the, the epoch of the 30 glorious, as we say, period of great prosperity, period where the Western Europe believed stupidly, but believed that the resources were infinite, that it was, uh, um, uh, that the scarcity did not exist, and so on. And there was a feeling of youth and of immortality. And immortal youth was the feeling, the, the main whiff, the main smell of all those people demonstrating and so on and so on. But here I see, again, here, my God, this is a nice debate because now you appear more 
leftist than me in the sense of trusting the West. I have two problems here. I think that this dimension, I'm first to agree it with... It is my thesis in the book, by the way, if yeah. you read me well. Yeah, I, I, I pretend yeah. to be more leftist than you. Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, and we know that okay, there is so nothing but pretense in the world. Okay, <laughs> let me go on. So, but you know where I see the problem? First, I'm the first to agree with you that these are real achievements. We shouldn't make fun of them, like gay rights, uh, uh, feminism, even the way authority functions and so on. But but nonetheless, it fascinates me how, and again, I'm here referring vaguely, not only to them, to the famous book, The New Spirit of Capitalism by Luke Boltanski and, uh, and so on, uh, in what, how ideally the new, how ideally May 68, that's for me a kind of Hegelian cunning of reason, helped to give a new push and, uh, to capitalism. And, and I'm not saying this is bad, I'm just saying as a diagnosis. It's not only new freedoms, it's the entire new logic I claim say, of you, marketing. When you say it's not bad, do you mean it? Sorry? You said it's not necessarily bad. No, it's just a new face. I mean, uh, everything in the world, most of the things, okay, are uh, bad and good. That's the, pa I mean, that's the paradox. But let me make a point that I want to make. The way, how, how, let me go here to the United States. How do we consume today when you have a commodity to buy? It's no longer the primitive level, buy this car because it's the best, uh, let, uh, uses less gasoline, whatever. It's also no longer the competitive logic of, uh, of keeping up with the Joneses, like status symbol. Isn't it that today we are more and more addressed, even by publicity, as buy this car because, for example, it's a Land Rover, you can drive into nature, you can realize your authentic self, it's part of self-realization, and so on, and so on. And let me go to the extreme here. Uh, this is why I find so problematic this uh, all stuff with organic food, and so on. Do you really believe that if you buy the apples, orga so-called organic apples, which are usually more rotten and ha uh, cost half mo uh, more, do you really believe that they are more healthy? No. It's also not competition, but it makes you feel well, you know, like, my God, I participate in something great. I'm not just a stupid consumer. I, I show solidarity with it. It's the trap that I encounter here every day when I unfortunately have to go to Starbucks coffee, you know, like, Practically, they make you feel that with, with each cup of coffee, you save some Guatemala kid from starvation or whatever. <laughs> I mean, let's just be aware that's one dimension of 68, which, again, I sincerely mean that it's not bad, that it's not a priori bad. No, I think there are, how to put it, ethical awareness did grow up with this. I'm the first to admit it. All I'm saying is, as an old-fashioned half-Marxist pessimist, how should I put it? No. Let's look what baggage comes with it. You know, for example, what do you think about, I want to ask you now a question, what I find dangerous with charity. Charity is in now. It's no longer as it was 100 years ago with Carnegie, some idiosyncratic guys. Today, everybody does charity. But What's the message we get? You see that uh, poster everywhere, some deformed uh, black child, and then for a price of one cappuccino, you can save his life, whatever. The message, I think, if you read it between the lines, it's pretty cynical one, is pay a little bit and it will make you feel better and you don't have to worry about it and you don't have to politicize it and so on and so on. I think that charity, no wonder Bill Gates likes it today, no wonder that did you notice something that a certain rhetoric which 
20 years ago when we were young was the rhetoric of the left saying to us who live in relatively comfortable lives, are we aware that we live in ivory tower and out there people are starving? Today, the mainstream is saying this all the time. It's one way to, to, to depoliticize us. I, I, my idea is that today's ideology is the ideology of depoliticization. We are no longer predominantly addressed as sacrifice except for strange countries, strange parties where you see the poster, our country first, but that's another thing. <laughs> it's no longer sacrifice yourself. What is, how are we today addressed by a society to be what we are? Isn't the main address kind of a spiritualized oriental, orientalism, like be truly yourself? realize your potentials and so on and all, all that stuff. And I think this legacy of 68 I find problematic, which is why, let me find the further contact with you and I will stop now and return a question to you. I hope we share another point, which is to be brutal hatred of Emir Kusturica. I, we do agree here. Underground, I think, is one of the most horrible films that I've seen. Because it's, the, it's as if this poem that I quoted was set to film there. What kind of society you see, Yugoslav society in Kusturica's underground? A society where people all the time fornicate, drink, fight, a kind of eternal orgy. And here, what you referred to as this uh, eternal youth, excessive energy, one path, I'm not saying the only one, one path leads to Radovan Karadzic, I claim. I claim that the duty, moral duty today, I'm maybe in a different way a moralist like you, the moral duty today is precisely to problematize this, how should I call it, carnivalesque transgressive model. Order is bad, let's suspend the rules, let's have a free access and so on. Do you know a detail which maybe will interest you? You know, He's more popular in France than here, uh, how is the guy called, sorry, Mikhail Bakhtin, the great author of uh, Theory of Carnival. You know that a Russian friend told me that now they discovered some private papers from the 30s when he was writing his book on Francois Rabelais. And you know what was his model of Carnival? Stalinist purges. That's the true Carnival. Today you are a member of Central Committee, tomorrow you are English spy, piece of shit and so on. So I, I claim that there also is a legacy of, we have to see 68 in all its ambiguity. Strike back. Strike back. Strike back. No, my God. I'm sorry, no, no, I'm sorry for this Stalinist gesture. Did you notice this point that in Stalinism, in, in fascism, you are a leader. You give a speech, people applause, you just accept it. In Stalinism, the you leader joins the applause. Of course. So we are on the good side. Okay. To give the sign. To give to the give sign. <laughs> Strike back. There is a, a famous story of Robespierre speaking on the tribune of the National Assembly and uh, he's looking at two MP in the balcony, and suddenly one is, uh, seems frightened, she's shaken by fear. And his neighbor says, what, uh, what is the matter? Why, uh, why do you, are you shaken by fear? And he said, Robespierre is looking at me, he will believe I think something. So of course, <laughs> have to applaud. That's no, to answer to sorry, your two questions. Uh, sorry, no, no. Kustorica, 
and uh, the caritative, the, the charity. On Kustoritsa, strangely enough, this, uh, this event is a really, really an opening event of the season because everything is unpredictable for you. Just as I like it. Just as you like. I don't agree on Kusturica. Uh About the man, of course, yes. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Not that I'm his enemy. I'm, I'm the enemy of nobody uh, except uh, Putin, Milosevic, Karadzic, but I think I am his enemy. So, but uh, Underground is not a bad movie. It's not a bad movie. Um, and I think that, uh, formally speaking, uh, on the level of narrative and so on, I would not be so severe. And I would say that Costa Rica is one of the cases, we have some writers like this, where the man is so, so, so more stupid than his work. You have, uh, you have Céline, you have a lot of writers who are stupid in the life and who make great books. Costa Rica is that. No, better. I prefer that the man is less stupid than his work, than the reverse. If Kusturica was brilliant and the movie was zero, it would be much worse. We have the, the good combination. Sorry. About charity. <laughs> am, I, am I allowed to answer? For the charity. time being, yes. Okay. You will whistle the end of the recreation as the, the gaullist communist power in 68. Yeah. About charity, um, I, I agree partly with you. Uh, partly only because I think that nevertheless there is a sort of grandeur and a nobility in the charity and so on. All that makes that one is concerned by the other, all that can make that I am ashamed even one second of what is happening outside my private world is good. I really believe that. I really and believe... This, this library wouldn't be here, quite frankly, if it weren't for Carnegie and charity. I think that there is a good use of the shame, un bon usage de la honte, of the scruple, of the shame in politics. And that to terrorize a little the people, even if it is at dinner time, even if, if it is between the soup and the, and the cheese, even five minutes is not so bad. And that's why I was involved in my youth in some caritative movement. That's why I uh, went, uh, I, I was a fellow companion of the movement uh, uh, inventing the devoir d'ingérent, the duty of involvement and so on. All these caritative things are not so bad. And when you travel a little, as you do, as I do, when you go in a really damped place of the world, when you go in the, in the black holes of the planet, in Africa, places like that, in Angola, in Burundi, sometimes the more clever people, the most informed, the only who maintain alive a little spark of the universality of human are these charity guys or, or women who are trying to help and so on. It is a sort of little spark of universal values in a world which ignores them. But, so, but, you know, I mean, Zizek didn't uh, say what he writes in the book, but in the book he says, charity no, is a humanitarian you. mask hiding the face of economic exploitation. Do I say this? You, you do. And, 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 yes. and it's a, it's a yes. strong comment. I mean, you, you speak me, about Carnegie me, as a let, let man me. of steel and a uh, heart let, of gold. Let, let me finish. To, to ask Carnegie to give a little 
will be never bad. I will never cry uh, if we uh, help Carnegie to empty a little his pocket. It will. He did it himself. No, he does not do it himself. He does it because he's under uh, moral blackmail uh, of some opinion leader, of some journalist, of some titles of the TV and so on. That is never bad. Now, the real problem with charity, and on this point I would agree with you, but I will maybe express in, uh, in other words. Number one, it replaced politics. Yeah, and yeah. when it replaced yeah, politics, it's a point. disaster. And I saw that myself but with in my... Bosnia, in you Bosnia. should know this. Voilà. Yeah. I, I saw it, I, I more than noticed, I, made a, I shot a movie about that. The way in which the great powers said, we deliver to you blankets in which we shall put your corpse, and for the price of that, let us in peace and don't ask us anything else, was really disgusting. And the charity people themselves, the average humanitarian girls and boys knew that they were doing this task, knew that they were manipulated by the powers, by the states who, who washed their hands of the flesh and the blood of the Bosnians and who just asked as an illusion, as a cloud of ink, the humanitarian to do the job. This is one real, more than limit, one real um, uh, perverse effect of the humanitarian and the charity. The other one, which I observed not in Bosnia, but in Rwanda, and in Africa in general, but especially in Rwanda, and my friend Philippe Gourevich, who is here, knows that also, and better, maybe better than I, he devoted a book to that, to, a part of a book to that. The, the charity movement, the, the, the way, the fact of seeing the world with the eyes of charity, has also the effect of transforming the human being, which is a complicated thing at the end of the day, which is not a thing, which is a body, which is a mind, an articulation between the two, and so on. The charity business has the result of transforming the human being into a single, a simple body. There is a bodification of the subject, a, a fleshicization of the of the, of the human being. And in Rwanda, it was very clear how many times I heard my, the politics of my country or some big humanitarian consciousness of my country saying, but we did a lot in Rwanda. Okay, but what did they do? After the genocide, when the genocide was over, they went to give food and to give goutte à goutte, drop by drop, to the murderers to the people who did the genocide. They did not even ask the question, people being just bodies, without soul, or the charity having the duty, the task to manage the bodies and not to know anything about the souls. The question to know if one was an executioner or a victim, which sort of execution was not raised at all. So this is the other perverse effect, terrible one, and I saw that again in Rwanda, but not only. In Rwanda it was caricatural, it is something terrible, and it might be, in this sort of case, one of the worst and most terrible form of despise of the other, and even of racism. You, black people from Rwanda, are just good to be fed and shall up your soul, your destiny, your political role in this tragedy 
we don't want to know anything about that. Thank you for defending me, because you see, that's my point. My problem with charity, let me make a step further, where I think it's the clear-cut case. We all know, and again, my source here are not some crazy marginal leftists, but mainstream United States. Two years ago, there was, uh, in the summer, there was a cover story in the Time magazine about Congo, claiming that in the last 10 years, around 4 million people died there of unnatural causes, and so on and so on. Of course, you can approach it in this patronizing way as a problem of charity mixed with, uh, mixed with despising the local military, because that's the refined form of racism. Poor Africans are good as victims in the sense of objects of charity. The moment they take things into their own hands, they become warlords and so on. But the problem I have in Congo is this one. Uh, we have there what? A state which de facto, more or less, doesn't exist as a state. It's cut into, lo uh, into local areas where local warlords, local armies rule. But what keeps all of it alive? Here, a little bit of Marxist analysis is helpful. All these local warlords are, of course, connected each with another foreign company doing mining, diamond, zinc, and so on and so on. And that's how the entire system perfectly works. It's the best deal. Local warlords got their money, get rich, foreign companies don't have to do with taxes, all that stuff, and so on and so on. And you have the greatest, probably at this moment, humanitarian catastrophe in the world, like if I may put it in my extravagant words, an average Congolese citizen would probably have sold his mother into slavery to be able to move to the West Bank, how should I put it? No, it's infinitely worse, but it's not in. It's not in because it puts it fits perfectly all agents, local warlords, military, and foreign companies. So isn't it a nice example of, instead of playing charity there, let's just do something at the level of how we control companies, relations of capital, and maybe we can do something. It's not basically a problem of charity, which is always also a problem then of implicitly treating others as, you know, we must teach them democracy and all that stuff. But since I mentioned West Bank, I propose, if we all agree, like Comrade Stalin says, I put this to the Central Committee, to, uh, shall we move to more difficult topics since I mentioned West Bank? Where is the misunderstanding about Israel, Palestine, anti-Semitism today and so on? Do you want to start with your statement or...? <laughs> No, you are... Misunderstanding between who and who? Maybe there is, you know, as the, you know I'll tell you a nice story. You know, the... the, the for, for? Wait for the story. The story no, no, it's I... a very short story. It's one sentence. No, I... I okay. Yeah. It's, a haiku, end, it's a haiku. Know, at the end of yeah. Gone with the Wind, uh, Red Butler says to the woman, Scarlett O'Hara, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Like, F three points off. In Japan, I was told where they are very polite, you know how they translated this line when they subtitled the film? Something like, frankly, my dear, I think there is a slight misunderstanding <laughs> between the two of us. So, in this sense, maybe there is a slight misunderstanding. <laughs> maybe. I don't know what, I don't know. I, I don't know what you think about that. As for myself, yeah. I think the same, I have the same opinion since, uh, yeah. unfortunately, 40 years. Uh, it might even have been the first article I ever wrote in 69, two years after the War of the Six Days. I believe in the solution of, uh, of two states, 
a Palestinian state and in an Israeli state, recognizing each other and living in peace. This is my position. I never moved from that. Uh, I think that you have some um, enemies of this solution in the Israeli society. But I think that you have also enemies and more enemies in the Arab world and in the Palestinian uh, world, in the Palestinian camp, more enemies because you have today, but you had already since the beginning, inside the Palestinian uh, people and the Palestinian leadership, a real split between some Democrats who really want a compromise, who really want a good divorce, a good political solution, a sharing of the earth, and some people who were the, the, the inheritors of a very well-known Arab leader called Husseini, the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, who was a Nazi, who was in Berlin during the Second World War, who was very proud to have met Hitler, who went to Auschwitz and who said that uh, he had never seen something more great than uh, Auschwitz, and who was the mentor of some of the leaders of the Palestinian movement, including Yasser Arafat. So this part of the Palestinian leadership, of course, cannot believe in this political, reasonable, acceptable solution of a good divorce and a good sharing of the earth, because they do believe, before the existence of Israel, they already believed that the Jewish people here and elsewhere should be uh, erased and exterminated. Okay, then let, me, let me enumerate maybe uh, two, three points of where I, while basically agreeing with many things that you put, I would just shift the accent maybe, if I can have now my three, four minutes and then I'm looking at you as my superego. Okay, first, uh, I agree with you unconditionally that uh, uh, there should be no compromise with anti-Semitism, in the sense that I totally reject those so-called leftists who claim, you know, Arabs are, they don't say it, but they mean it, Arabs are primitive, so we should excuse them if they sound sometimes anti-Semitic, they suffered so much under Israeli occupation, and so on and so on. Yes, ruthlessly, no compromise here, but... My but is the following one. Now comes the problematic thesis. Would you agree with it or not? When I visited a couple of times Israel, I encountered in uh, the way they, some of the Israeli establishment, criticizes those Jews who have doubts about uh, the politics of the state of Israel, I couldn't not have noticed it that they criticized them in how do they construct those Jews who are not fully Zionist. I'm sorry to tell you there is only one historical analogy. They, they categorized them in exactly the same way as 100 years ago, at that point of the beginning of the early 20th century, anti-Semitism in Europe, Na local nation states dismissed the Jews. The idea is, you appear to be one of us, 
Jews, but you are not really one of us. You are ruthless and so on. And a proof, a shocking proof. I defy you to visit it. This is a, an extreme point of this development. There is a website which shocked me pretty much. It's called www.masada.com. It has a list of 4,000 Jews who are designated at this site as shit, shit, la merda. Shit, which then they interpret self-hating Israel terrorizing Jews. It's horrible list. Each of them is as evil a photography as possible, evil, blah, blah, blah. And my first idea was, my God, did these guys hire a, an old Nazi to do this? So I, will, I, I see your nervosity. Let me fi just finish the thought. You know where my problem started? When something unnatural happened in this country, my big basic hypothesis is that if ever there is a group which should be by its nature anti-Semitic, it's American Christian fundamentalists. It's in their nature to be anti-Semitic. So how is it, my God, that all of a sudden now, did you notice, they fanatically support the Zionist project? I think because they sympathize with uh, what runs against a certain aspect of being Jewish. Let me finish with a joke. Wonderful caricature recently in Austria, making fun, you know, of the usual defense of Jewish establishment, which say, of course, you can criticize Israel as much as you want, but don't misuse the critique of Israel, state of Israel, for anti-Semitic purposes. This caricature shows two big, fat, Nazi-looking Austrians. One shows to the other an article and says, Look, yet another example of how a totally justified anti-Semitism is brutally misused for an unfair critique of the state of Israel and so on. No, that's the logic of them. That's where I see the danger. One should always bear in mind of this most precious inheritance of Jewish tradition, which comes precisely of them being, uh, as French political philosophers would have said, la part di non part, the ones who precisely not being part of the organic social community stand directly for the dimension of universality. And I'm not simply accusing Israel. I see this as a very tragic development that now even something that I'm tempted to call with all respect as a defense of all of my Jewish friends, Zionist anti-Semitism is appearing in the sense that what they criticize is precisely a certain figure which sounds familiar in Europe. Do you find this problematic? I, I, I agree. No, I, I agree on two points and I disagree strongly on the third one. Okay. The, neo the American neo-Christians, the nature of their support to Israel, I am, I am like you, I am suspicious. As a, as a friend of Israel, as a very devoted friend of Israel, I know that Israel has no so many support, so okay. When I, I often say to my friend in Tel Aviv or in Jerusalem, take the support, but keep the gun under the pillow because they are probably not the most sincere friends that you can have. And the friendship based on a misunderstanding is not a true one. And you know on what point this friendship is based. The neo-Christian American just want an Israel clean, ready, and in peace for the landing of the Messiah of the last days. Exactly. As Ahmadinejad 
who asks uh, the streets of Tehran to be enlarged because in a few minutes the uh, last uh, imam, the, the, the hidden imam is going to arrive and we have to, be, to make big avenues like Baron Osman in Paris, you have exactly the same in, in a way, some American Christians who say Israel has to be in order of march for the day of the return of the Messiah. On this, I agree. They are strange friends, and I would um, uh, advise uh, to be very careful about that, Israel and my friends of Israel. I agree also, I more than agree, I'm glad to hear that in your voice, that of course no compromise with anti-Semitism whatsoever, and I even feel that in this way which some have, to ask some accounts to all countries in the world about their past Nazism, we ask Germany, to be, uh, to, to be accountable of their Nazism. We ask Italy to be accountable, to tell us about, to, to, to bear the sorrow, to make the mourning of their fascism. We ask it to France, except the Arab. They are, for some so-called liberals, for some people of left in dark times, the only one who should not be accountable of, who should not be asked about, who should not be uh, helped to go out also of the nightmare of Nazism is the Arabs. And this is unbearable, and this supposes, yes, a sort of racism. They are not really responsible, they are not really political subjects, and we do not have to have the same exigence, the same uh, uh, demands toward them that toward civilized people. This is disgusting for them. And I know, again, a lot of uh, people, intellectuals, average citizens in many Arab countries who say that, who, said, who say, why should we be the only one treated, uh, treated as, as children who should not be bothered too much about their past fascism because it is going to make us mad? It's unacceptable. About Israel and the birth of uh, uh, Zionist anti-Semitism, I, I think, uh, my dear Slavoj, maybe on this point, maybe you don't know enough Israel. Maybe you don't know enough Israel because probably this exists. You have stupid people everywhere, you have an extreme right everywhere, and also in Israel. You have also a, a great rabbi who said a few years ago that the Shoah, the Holocaust, was the punishment, was the punishment for crimes committed by the most innocent people of the whole history, which were the poor Jews of uh, uh, Eastern Europe and so on and so on. So you have stupid guys in Israel too. And you have also, this you are, you are right, you have a real movement which is called the Cananean movement. People who do believe that there is no other destiny for a Jew than to be downrooted solidly in the earth and in the race and in the blood of the ancestors and who are against any solution, uh, diaspora and so on, and who would say that the values of diaspora are bad values, corrupted and so on. It is true, but I think really it is a tiny, tiny minority. And the proof of that, the proof of that is that Israel is the only country in the world, I don't know so many, where you have, not only in the society, but in the political debate, and not only in the political debate, but in the parliament, you have some people who are officially, whose program is anti-Zionism. 
you have some member of parliament who are anti-Zionism. It is as if we had in France some people, some member of parliament who were in favor of the destruction of France, in favor of the illegitimacy of France. You have that at the Knesset. You have some member of parliament who say that. You have some political parties of extreme left. You have an Arab party who do really believe that Zionism is a mistake, that the creation of Israel is a mistake. And not only they are tolerated, but they are member of the debate. And I say extreme leftist movement, and I say an Arab party, but not only. You have also, in a great part of Jerusalem, which is called Mea Shearim, which is a place vibrant of faith and of uh, creed and of uh, spirituality. The people there, the men in black, who are completely devoted to the Torah, to the study and so on, they don't recognize Israel. They are like the Amish in America. They do believe that Israel is a mistake, that they are here only because they are closer to the, to the sky, but they don't recognize this state and so on. So a state which admits in its cities in its political institution, in the core of the debate, the denial of its very essence is a country which does not look like the caricature which was offered to you by the friends you met. So I make you a proposal, yeah. seriously. Yeah. Let's go together in Israel, and I will show you another face of the country. No, but I'm okay. okay. No, but I often go to Israel, but then, go let, but then let me make you another proposal. Do you agree to go with me to West Bank then? No, 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 wait a minute. To see, because that's what is for me missing in your book, you know? First, let me make it clear. I don't buy these stupid stories, you know, Israelis are the new Nazis and, you know, this standard story. Yeah, yeah, maybe they suffered a little bit, the Jews, in the World War II, but what they were doing, what Nazis were doing to them, they are now doing to the Arabs, I don't buy that. But nonetheless, it's very instructive to visit the West Bank and to observe the, what? My source here is not some crazy left-winger, it's Tony Blair. I read, an inter I, I read an interview with him and he said he was shocked by what, maybe in the terms of Michel Foucault, we can call this my microphysique of bureaucratic power, this incredible network of small measures to annoy the to Arabs, humiliate. to humiliate and so on, that was breathtaking to me. You cannot, sorry, justify it by any rational security measures. For example, the example is from Tony Blair, not from my sources in Al-Qaeda or whatever, no? <laughs> that, for example, if you are a farmer, Palestinian or Jewish in the West Bank, you know how much more water per capita you get if you are a Jewish farmer? Do you know that if you want to dig for water, Blair is my source, as a Palestinian farmer you can dig three feet deep. I don't know what they're afraid, that we will duck a tunnel for terrorists or what. As you know, this is what is making life so unbearable for them. It's a, it's a, and it's a systematic politics. My second thing, you know where I'm a little bit more pessimist than you? Unfortunately, I don't think, now I think you simplified it a little bit. It's not as simple as bad Arabs, and they are bad. I agree there with you. I don't think, as some of my ex-friends think, that Hamas is the new Leninist party or whatever, no? But you don't have, on the one hand, Hamas, on the other hand, some more secular, democratic, blah, blah, blah. First, I claim that 
there is a long-standing catastrophe of Western politics there. Do you know, again, my source is New York Times here, do you know that till five, six years ago, that's what I read in New York Times, the state of Israel, or maybe now it's seven, eight years ago, was supporting financially Hamas because they wanted to weaken Arafat, divide and rule, and so on. What the catastrophe for me is that, some time ago, don't ask me when, I hope we agree here, the West made, it started in Afghanistan and elsewhere, a fateful wrong decision, claiming that uh, 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 religious fundamentalists are better than the secular left. And we are all paying a terrible, terrible price for that. I, I would, what, what, I, what, I, what I propose to both of you is that I go on these journeys with you, but what I would like to say now is that let's move away from Israel for a moment, come back to it. Uh, Islamofascism. I want Islamofascism. No, no, I don't want it. I want to debate it. <laughs> no, very sincere. Can I make it a short point, please? Then yes, I, feel, yes. I will ask you a question. I, what I like in your idea of Islamofascism is to politicize it. Islamic fundamentalism is too... Uh, my God, we are not talking about a spiritual movement. We are talking of a violent political movement. So let's at least use some political term. Okay. I find nonetheless two things problematic. First one, uh, then let's call it simply fascism. You know, if we talk about Islamofascism, would you agree to call Mussolini or Hitler Christofascism or what? If you, the, but a more fundamental problem. I see and this is not, please, this is not a refined way to try to diminish it, claiming they are any better and so on. But there is for me one big difference which strikes the eye for the Nazis and European fascists. The dangerous Jew was not the Jew with a state, was the stateless Jew who was like, you know, microbes spreading. Yeah. It's great, but is there a question? Yes. You, yes, the question is, don't you find this big difference that for the old Nazis, the enemy is the stateless Jew who penetrates everywhere, which is why the Nazis, before they decided on Holocaust, they even supported the idea of the state of Israel, just to have the Jews then together out of us. While Whatever you say, except for some madmen, for the majority of Arabs, the problem is, on the contrary, the Jewish state. They don't mind if the Jews are wandering around. Just don't give them land and state. It's, for me, an important opposition. No, my, my you don't think it's... I don't think so, no, okay. no, because I, I, I listen carefully what uh, Hassan Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, says. He gave many interviews where he said precisely the contrary. My enemies are not only the Jews living in Israel, but they are the Jews living out of Israel. I know that before the creation of Israel, the, you had an Arab Nazism, an Arab fascism, who said exactly what, what Hitler said. I hate the Jews as, um, as a virus, microbe, infiltrating everywhere. When, when Husseini was in Berlin, when the Muslim Brothers were founded in Egypt, there was not Israel. There was a little Yishuv, which was no, there was the Balfour Declaration, and a little group of 200 or 300,000 people in the place of uh, Palestine. There was no state. And the anti-Semitism was rabbic also in the Arab world. So I think that the ant an anti-Semite has a, proper, a peculiarity. He really hates Jews in any form. 
When they have a state, he hates the state. When they don't have the state, they, uh, he hates them stateless. And when they have both a state and uh, where they are dispersed, spread, he hates the two, and he tries to fight the two. This is really the, 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 the peculiarity of this uh, str strange and, and weird hatred. He, it hates Jews in all, all forms. Should I call uh, the, the Mussolini, uh, Cristiano, Fascism, and Hitler? Why not? I would, but let, then let's be precise. I, I could call Mussolini a Latin fascism. I could call Hitler a pagan fascism. Yes, why not? A pagan fascism. Hitler, it was not a Christian fascism. The Nazism was also an anti-Christian movement, as you know. The project of Hitler was to, was to build a sort of a new national church of the Third Reich and so on. Hitler was the new agent ahead of his time, I claim. Of course, time, of, course yeah. of course. So, uh, oh, we have to, why not, to precise, and I'm, I'm ready to make the precision in each case. The only thing I ask is to uh, relieve this sort of um, uh, strange extraterritoriality and fear which size us when the moment comes to characterize and to denounce for the sake of the Muslim themselves the fascism which uh, enrages parts of the Muslim world. Let, I agree, let but... Me, let me take back the power. Um, just for one minute. You, you, think, you never you think, lost it. Uh, did you think you, you ever never lost the power? It. You never I lost never it. lost it. I never had it. No, no. And so you are invited in Israel and in Ramallah. We'll make the two. It's just a marvelous proposition. Now, um, I, I would like to come back, uh, Bernard-Henri Lévy, to your book. And to, uh, on the one hand, the elegiac quality of it and the hopeful quality. Uh, you, were say, you were talking about being rather more pessimistic. You, in some way, uh, and maybe you can start by, by relating this famous phone call you got from Sarkozy, you are in some way telling us that it still makes sense to be a man on the left. You uh, have this one line uh, that you quote from Arago, I am irreducibly a man of the left, and if that expression makes you laugh, you're nothing but a buffoon. And in some way, um, I would like you to explore with us, to unpack for us what it means for you to still, in this day and age, be on a man on the left, if it makes any sense really to differentiate left and right quite as much as you do, and to speak, generally speaking, of your hope for a left. Number one, yes, I think that uh, we have to it's a, it's a duty, if not, uh, uh, there is no politics and maybe no society any longer. We have to distinguish the right and the left. We have to feed all that can make debates. The cities, the societies where there is no longer political debates, which could be the dream of some, and maybe of Sarkozy, I think that they are mature for the worst, which is for dictatorship. So I do believe, of course, I do believe that you have to have a right, you have to have a left. It is not the only opposition. You have to have also, uh, inside the left, you have some debates. This is the purpose of my book. You have uh, a left which is faithful to anti-colonialist tradition, and you have a left also who, being faithful to the anti-colonialist tradition, tries to be faithful to the anti-totalitarian uh, movement and so on. So 
the more you have debates, the more you have dividing lines, the more you have political quarrels, the best, the better for the democracy, the better for the multiplication of powers, rights uh, for, the, for the simple people. Because you talk of a left you dream of, even though it is a corpse. About Sarkozy, you, yeah. about Sarkozy uh, in this uh, conversation which opened the book and which was the... Impetus. Yes, the occasional cause, I would say, uh, of the book. I say two things to Sarkozy, because he calls me to, to, to enlist me, to, to ask me uh, why don't you, what are you waiting to endorse me? Your, your, friends, friend, your friends have endorsed so, me. A lot of your friends has, have done it, have written articles in Le Monde and so on. What are you waiting uh, for? We knew each other, we were even uh, in the past years sort of buddies. Uh, he married my, 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 my brother, uh, we were, we were uh, rather close. He didn't marry your brother. He married my brother with his wife, yes. He, he was a mayor of, of the city. Oh, he married... Oh, he I married... No, no, no. Ah, I, no. no, no. <laughs> because, I mean, I, I thought... That's a problem. I thought even in France. Even you know, in yeah. France, yes, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. I told you this would have been one of the results of May 68, yeah. Nicolas Sarkozy <laughs> marrying my brother. <laughs> A mix, would have supported him, a maybe. mix between yeah. May 68 and my terrible English could give this sort of uh, atypic aberration. No, he married, he organized the, the wedding, of, he celebrated the wedding of my brother, so we had reasons to be close, and he had reasons to call me this day in this kind and gentle way, to which I, I replied in a, in, a, in a gentle but very firm way, I said him no. And then, I said to him, no, but I told him two things, which are really, for me, the, the bottom of this book, the, the depth of, the, of this book. I told him that as, a, as an intellectual, as a writer, as a citizen, as everybody, I think that we have two duties. We have a duty of, uh, of faithfulness, and we have a duty of unfaithfulness. We have a duty to be faithful to our tradition, to our uh, intellectual family, to the patterns, the models, the, 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 which made, molded each of us. And for me, my family is that. My father was a former uh, uh, fighter in the Spanish War. I was bred in the idea that the left was better than the right, that there was a part of dream there which knew no equivalent on the right, and so on. So I was faithful to that. And I told him also, and this is uh, the real spark of the book, that a duty of faithfulness is worth nothing if it is not accompanied by a duty of unfaithfulness, which means when your family turns back to what you believe to be the justice, uh, the, the truth, and so on, then you have to be unfaithful to your family, then you have to, to contest, to fight against, but from inside your family. And when I see so many leftists in my country today, who in name of anti-imperialism, for example, accept some crimes, who in name of anti-colonialism, because Sudan is a former colony, refuse to condemn what is happening in Darfur, because condemning what is happening in Darfur would mean to reproduce the old argument of the colonial time. When I see some of them, leftists, in the name of tolerance, 
in the name of the idea that each opinion is equal to everyone. Refuse to condemn those who condemn to death Ayan Yersi Ali because it is an opinion. They say, you have some leftists today, some liberals in France who say, it is Ayan Yersi Ali has an opinion, who is a, which is a provocative one, which, is, which consists in saying that Islam is a bad thing and that she wants to go out. Provocative means that it provokes another opinion which consists in banning her and not only banning, but prosecuting, and not only prosecuting, but condemning her to death. So when I see that in the left, I do believe that I have, uh, I, would not be, I would not be faithful to myself if I was not also unfaithful to this well, you know that, uh, left uh, in... Uh, that line of Saul Ballow, when he says one doesn't love because but in spite. In, in some ways, yes, you no. remain faithful to the I left. I remain faithful to the left, yes. In spite, but not only in spite. Uh, I, I do believe, uh, I think that there is an emergency to explain to the left, for example, that uh, tolerance is good, but secularism is good too. It is urgent to say to the left that even if America supports Darfur, Darfur remains a cause that they have to support. I think it is, um, it is urgent to, to, to say to the left that even when it is, when it is said in the leftist rhetoric, anti-Semitism is uh, unbearable and so on. So not only in spite, I think that the battle has to be waged inside the left, which is in a terrible state in Europe and also in America, uh, and this battle has to be, to be waged, and that is why I wrote this book. I think for you, Slavoj, uh, remaining faithful to the left, if indeed you are, means something slightly different. Uh, yeah, it means <laughs> crazy, at, and if you allow me to explain it briefly why, uh, in, in some sense, I still consider myself a communist. Why? When we talk about the left today, for me, in a somewhat simplified way, the problem is Fukuyama or not. That is to say, in the same sense as 30, 40 years ago, we were dreaming about socialism with the human face, what most of the left today, so-called third-way left and so on, effectively strives after is global capitalism with the human face. A little bit more tolerance, more this, more that, and so on. Against this, I still believe what? First, and I cannot emphasize this strongly enough, I accept all your points about uh, anti-Semitism and so on and so on, but on one point I insist. The conflict which is presented to us by the media and so on as the main conflict between tolerant, democratic, openness, whatever, human rights and fundamentalism, this conflict with which we are bombarded is not the true conflict. It's in some sense a false conflict. Something is missing with the in the equation between liberal democracy, let's call it vaguely, and fundamental. I think that both poles are here caught into each other, are part of the same self-propelling movement. What is missing is the left. And I hear follow Walter Benjamin, who said that if I accept your designation of fundamentalism as fascism, that every fascism is a sign of a failed revolution. That's to say it's easy to mock 
oh, the left is over, it died. Yes, that's why we have what we have today. Second thing, uh, the, the, the next question. Uh, now I will be here very rational, not in any way pathetic. I know, I'm open here. My God, maybe liberal capitalism works. I'm the first to admit that, let's be frank, that probably no society in human history, large group, there was no society, no in, entire human history where such a large number of people lived such a relatively comfortable, safe and free lives as they did in Western Europe in the last 50, 60 years. One has to admit it. But I see dark spots, dangers on the horizon. And now I come to the crucial question. To put it in these bombastic old Marxist terms, are there antagonisms visible which I think it will not be able to solve them with the means of global capitalism we have it today? I think there are. A, ecology. I know market works, wonders, and so on. But I claim the risks... Yeah, yeah, not these days. Yeah, 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 yeah. The risks are too high. B, biogenetics. Even Fukuyama, as we know, he changed his position. He admits now that the biogenetic prospect ruins his, uh, his notion of the end of history. Then we, have, uh, then we have the problem of intellectual property. I claim intellectual property is a notion which, in the long term, it will not be able to include it into private property. It, it, it cannot. There is something in intellectual property which is, as it were, in its nature communist. It resists private property. And the last point, new walls everywhere, new forms of apartheid, and so on and so on. It is as if, ironically, the truth of globalization is not just the Berlin Wall fell. Berlin Wall fell, but now we have new walls all around. All, and again, I don't have any naivety here. I'm not saying, oh, there will be a new Leninist party. No, that story is definitely over. I agree with you. But some kind, why communism? Because, A, all these problems that I indicated, ecology, intellectual property, and so on, are problems of commons, of something which is the shared substance of our life. And some, in ecology it's clear, some kind of new form of collective activity but I totally agree with you. Nothing to do with Communist Party state or whatever. That story is over. Will have to be, will have to be invented. If not, if the system as it is will go on and on and on, then I think something will be going on which I fear very much. What in some of my books I called a soft revolution. We are not even aware of how slowly things are already regressing at the level of ethical standards even. For example, do you agree with this? When friends tell me why such a fuss about Guantanamo torturing, but isn't it clear that in China they torture infinitely more? I say, absolutely, I agree. I am not a hypocrite here. What matters to me is surface appearances. Don't you find it... Uh, what worries me is that 20, 30 years ago, if somebody were to advocate publicly torture, it would, he or she would have been dismissed as an idiot. Like, you don't even have to argue. It would have been the same as to argue about rape. I would be very worried if I were to live in a society where one would have to argue all the time that one shouldn't rape women, how should I put it, no? And it's not only the fact that we talk about torture in this way and numerous other facts point towards something which I find a little bit worrisome. And here 
in a strange way, I find some contacts with you when you attack false notions of tolerance and so on. The problem is how a certain way of false politically correct tolerance is, is how tolerance overlaps with new forms of oppression, paradoxally, paradoxally, with new forms of censorships and so on and so on. So I find that although apparently we don't live in dynamic times in the sense of big struggles, it seems that we all agree somehow well, things are happening and, uh, how to put it, sooner or later we will have somehow to confront the problem which was at the same time the basic problem of communism and the problem basically also of 68. Let's not forget, 68 was also a radical questioning of the existing global system. Things are happening, um, but the response on both of your sides is quite different. For you, in your book, Violence, basically one of the things you're saying is we should have a kind of Bartleby politics. I prefer not to. I remain disengaged. I um, will... Okay, no. I talk too much. If you want no, first, no, no, because no. I would love to explain this, but then I monopolize... No, uh, no, and in your case... There is no doubt, uh, whether it's Malraux or Sartre or other people who matter to you today, uh, l'engagement, ça continue. You continue to believe in, in, a, in a world that you confront yourself with and that by knowing it, you will try in some form or another to change it. You say in, in the book Violence, I don't have time now to read those passages, but basically, let's... Sometimes we, there's an urgency for us to act. Let's stay out of it. No, no, I will ask them. But then don't ask me, my God, okay. Ask what? I would uh, I reply to Savoy, or what is your question? Yeah. My, my question is that for you, engagement is still paramount. I reply to Slavoj first, and I will go but to your question. To what do you reply? Uh, okay, sorry. For you said a lot of things before. Uh, yeah, before. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, yes, you, you asked me about torture, about Guantanamo. Yeah. I do agree 100%, and for me, when I wrote uh, American Vertigo a few years ago, one of the most shocking things through which I went during my journey and my journey among intellectuals was the fact that there was a debate about yeah. torture. This, and among leftists, among intellectual leftists, I don't want to quote them here, they might not be here. So or they might be here. Mm, or they might be here. If they are here, they can raise their hand. But uh, the, the resurgence in America of a debate um, on the question of under which circumstances torture should be tolerated, the uh, ticking uh, bomb theory, if there is a bomb ticking somewhere and that if you can spare some thousands of lives, would you not accept torture, and so on. All these debates among scholars and intellectuals were such a regression um, uh, related to just uh, the text of Albert Camus about torture, saying that torture is in every case unacceptable. So on this, I agree. If communism means, this I'm surprised, if communism means just that we have some things in common, that we have a common world to, to, to take care of, like ecology and so on, if communism is just that, then I am a communist too. <laughs> and 
means a little bit more. And uh, that's what you said. If communism is that, uh, if it means that um, uh, we are living again a strange time, which is also a regression uh, regarding to our youth, where nations, nations are building borders uh, more and more uh, constraining, when the a world where the sense of internationalism is uh, withdrawing and so on, I agree with that. And for me, one of the most despairing characteristics of this time is, for example, the dream of internationalism, the dream of cosmopolitanism, the dream of a world where, of course, there will be some borders, but some borders which are made to be respected and to be crossed. This dream is, this dream is fading more and more because of sovereignism, as we say in Europe, because of nationalism, as it is said in other parts of the world, and so on. So against that, I would love more community, a world more in common, and if that is communism, I take it. About fundamentalism and liberalism, then we, are, we don't agree at all. I'm ready to accept, uh, of course, uh, that uh, liberalism produces some monsters, produces some horrors, and produces some chaos, and we know it to yesterday and today in this very place. We saw how liberalism at the Bush sauce, at the uh, cut tax uh, sauce, and so on, can produce nearly disaster, okay? Uh, Fanny and uh, Freddie and uh, Mary Lynch, blah, 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 all that is the product of a certain liberalism and it, is, um, uh, uh, it might lead this society to, to chaos, of course. Nevertheless, I think that there is a great difference with fundamentalism, which is that I do believe that America will correct that. I do believe that if Barack Obama is elected according to what he said, to his record track about this subject, there will be some regulation of finan on financial speculation and so on, which will make that uh, this sort of uh, madness will not happen or not in the same way. The fundamentalist societies are societies closed on them themselves, based on humiliation, and humiliation in particular against those, this part of uh, humanity which we saw in our youth the liberation of, which are the women. The fundamentalism, the thing which is unforgivable, the, the political fundamentalism, is the status of the women. A world where half of the humanity has to veil his face. A world where half of the humanity is considered not to be a real human being, but a living provocation. A world where you are a tool to reproduce the species, the human gender, and not a normal human being, is a world which is deeply, on moral grounds, corrupted, and this cannot be accepted and cannot be compared to the mistakes and even to the crimes of liberalism. I totally agree. My problem is only the following one. Let's take today's fundamentalism. Where does it come from? We all know, and I hope we agree, today's fundamentalism has nothing to do with some ancient tra e e traditions, even when it has the form of returning to an ancient tradition. It's something which is 
generated by today's global capitalist process. No, it depends, no. Why? Well, where did that come from? Sorry, but where? Okay, it's a reaction to it. Of course it's a reaction uh, so, to it. Uh, ex uh, yes, okay, a reaction to it, it it's, uh, it's um, already uh, not the same sort of causality. Uh, okay, a reaction to the capitalism? Maybe. So, uh, for this reason, you, you think that uh, what we should... Uh, what I think is that, is that you cannot really fight fundamentally. My problem is not... I don't want to do any kind of a compromise in the sense of uh, no fundamental... You know, I'm not this pseudo-Hegelian delectician, I hope both of... N none of us is, who says, on the one hand, fundamentalism, too much community, on the other hand, liberalism, too much individualism, so let's strike the proper measure. No. What I'm saying is that, is that it's, liberalism is not enough to fight fundamentalism. It always gets caught into liberalism, as it were, generates it, cannot stand of its own, for theoretical reasons, for other reasons, and so on. There are many reasons of the fundamentalism. There are, of course, these reasons you say. But isn't fundamentalism... Did you read the wonderful book of Kaichu that, uh, that, that fundament, how is he called, the philosopher of Al-Qaeda, who was studying in America, Said Quit, I think. Uh, so, yeah, you know him, no, the big guy. <laughs> okay. Isn't it absolutely clear that he, he was shocked by what he saw in its reaction to liberalism? Only in this sense. But, uh, he was shocked by what? He was shocked by, 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 by the freedom. Yeah, yeah. He was shocked by the free speech. Yeah. He was shocked by the, 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 the face of the women in the street. So should we suppress the face no. of the women in the street no. in order to help them not to react no. and not to be fundamentalist? It's I think there is another no. way. No, because what he says, what this sort of guy say is that Mohamed Atta said that. We have the, we have the confession of his, of his roommate in Hamburg who says exactly that. Mohamed Atta, yes, the man who yes. was on the World Trade Center, was shocked to see these girls with mini skirts, was shocked to see this free speech in cafes and so on in Berlin, was shocked by this atmosphere of corruption in the great city. And that's why he became a terrorist. So two ways of reacting to that. First way, we have to suppress big cities. We have to imprison our women, not to provoke yeah. the reaction of Mohamed yeah. Atta. I think it is not the right way to do. The other way to do, is to say that the free speech, the equality between men and women, the, uh, uh, the human rights in general are values which can be generalized, universalized, without breaking the balance, the eco cultural ecology of this or that country. We, you, we can imagine and we have to imagine and this is the demand of all the democrats of the Arab countries. We have to imagine, for example, Arab countries, but not only, also in Asia, who remain what they are, who remain faithful to the best of their culture, who remain faithful to the best of their tradition, and who add to that the equality between men and women, who add to that the fact of not killing the gays because they are gay, who add to that the freedom of press. We had this debate in Europe 20 years ago. In France, 20 years ago, we had some people, some great thinkers, some real philosophers who said, don't touch the death penalty in France. If you touch the death penalty, read Hegel, read Kant, Emmanuel Kant, read all the big minds, Beccaria and so on, 
you will destroy the state. The whole system holds by you the key of the death penalty. If you suppress the key, everything will fall into ruins. Thanks God, if I dare say, we had this guy, this man you are going to invite in a few days, Robert Badinter, who said, wait a minute, we are going to suppress death penalty, and you will see the French Soviet society will stay alive, the state will continue to function, and he was right, and François Mitterrand was right. One century ago, two centuries ago, you had people in France who said, if you accept the right to, 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 to mock God, if you accept the right to blaspheme, if you accept the right to go out of Christianity, it is the end of the world. And people thought that so much that people like Chevalier de la Barre, defended by Voltaire, was tortured, cut, cut into pieces, because he refused to take off the, his hat on a procession of priests. These people said, if you accept this way of being irreligious, if you accept the secularism, it is the end of the world. At the end of the day, the secularism triumphed in France. You have the right to mock God. You have the right to say that you don't believe in God. You have the right to say that, uh, to make some cartoons about Islam and about Christianity. And the real uh, uh, faithful to Islam, the real worshippers of uh, Christianity remain. Maybe they are offended, but the society works like this. The same should, can, and should happen in the rest of the world. There is no reason to accept the bla moral blackmail of those who tell us, if you impose us the equality between men and women, if you impose us the right to mock God, our societies will be destroyed and will explode. So the real point is, should we universalize or not the human rights? Or should we, under the pretext that there are European values coming from the Western world and so on, not do it? I think that we have to do it and that it is what the average uh, silent majority of this country are waiting for us. Not surprised. No. <coughs> no, here, not, okay, not surprised. Finally, we came to yeah, this yeah, agreement. Yeah, yeah. I think this solution ah. doesn't work. It's utopia. What? This is the true utopia. I, I, give you, I give you two minutes. Sorry, I give you, no, no, no. I give you four minutes. Yes. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, let me be as short as possible. First, I, I think that, uh, okay, I don't have time to go into it. I would need half an hour. But I think that when you said there is, of it course, is we, shouldn't, uh, we, shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't abandon feminine equality and so on and so on. But the whole point is what to do. I think the standard predominant liberal answer, inclusive your formula, doesn't work. Uh, uh, fundamentalism is a false pathological, socially pathological, I, sorry, oh, oh my God. <laughs> now you want me wired for, yeah. yeah. Uh, I think that uh, uh, fundamentalism is a uh, which is why I think that fundamentalism will not disappear. My God, you think you praise this country when this country is now in the works of a catastrophe. You, where do you see this liberalism? You will have Sarah Palin as a president. And now I come to the weakness of liberalism. You will have her exploiting precisely the weaknesses of the left. 
What are her advantages? First, I claim the left is paying the price A for its total ignorance of the working class. The United States multiculturalist left, they don't like the working class. So you have now the first dude, Todd Palin, blah, 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 they want that. B, B our common friend, I think, Jacqueline Miller, wrote a nice comment, maybe you read it in Le Point, where he made another wonderful simple point that Sarah Palin is a new type of, of women politician. It's no longer the old type, which was, to use somewhat descriptively naive terms, more phallic than men themselves, you know, like Margaret Thatcher, Indira Gandhi, we may be women, but we are tougher than, and so on. No, she fully displays her femininity, and so on. Isn't this an incredible paradox that the Republicans took over what was supposed to be the democratic ideal, and so on, and so on? Things are, of course, more complicated here, because I think that there are many paradoxes here. The main one is this one. When Republicans say change, we stand for change. Of course, the message between the lines is like plus a change, plus a rest le même, no? We will do the necessary change, changes to make it sure that nothing with, will really change, as it is clear from their program. But what I fear something, and I here share your fears. Oh, they, of course, are probably cynics and consciously manipulate with it. Like, to use the famous lipstick metaphor, McCain is Bush with lipstick. With lipstick of no bullshitting and so on and so on, it's the same politics. What I'm afraid of is, as we are both aware, words are never only words. So what I'm afraid, it's not that they are cheating, but that they are not cheating. That they will really change something. And I don't like to think what they will change, how should I put it. But to go back to your point, you see, that's my simple problem. Yes, liberalism, of course I am for everything there, what you said. My God, of course. My point is only that uh, there is something, a flaw in liberal project, which generates fundamentalism. I don't have time to develop it now. It's not even very original. And I'm, my problem is the same as yours. Of course, I don't want the fundamentalists to fill in this gap. I totally agree with you. That's where we need the left. Liberalist legacy, for which both of us care. What you said, my God, automatically, I admit it, equality of sexes, no race, blah, 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 can only be... But everywhere. Absolutely everywhere. No, no, absolutely everywhere. Wait a minute. I am not any kind of cultural relativist and so on. I wrote even a treaty here we agree against tolerance, against the falsity of tolerance, against how today we, we tend to mystify and use the term tolerance to justify moral indifference and so on and so on, like racism. Did you notice, this is where my, and I hope I will now awaken some of your old Marxism if I say this, uh, you need to be, re don't be afraid, when we take over, you will not go to Gulag, just two years of re-education camp would be good for you. So, the beginning of re-education. Didn't you find it strange how today when we talk about racism, it's automatically a question of tolerance, but as we old leftists know, read Martin Luther King, he, as far as I know, never uses the term uh, tolerance. It would be for him humiliating to say blacks need to be more tolerant. No, as you said, for him racism is a problem of not enough universal values, legal right, economic exploitation, and so on and so on and so on. Why do we today automatically transform 
racism into a problem of tolerance. Because, as you said, politics is receding in a new technocratic world. The only conflicts which remain are, are, are cultural conflicts, and all you can do there is to tolerate differences, and so on and so on. So on this question of universality, I'm here even more than you. I would do one step further against aggressive universality, and I will say, no, who is at the end of this universal line? Not Rami Robespierre, no, but that's another question, no, where we maybe disagree. Tolerance, we have, we have even a, a great French writer who said, tolerance, we have houses for that. Paul Claudel. And how, Paul Claudel, and houses for that. It is Maison de Tolerance, it is the name, the, the code name of Bordel, Brothels. So Paul Claudel said, tolerance, Come on, we have houses for that. You and him. Paul Claudel is, I love him. His Kufontaine uh, trilogy is my favorite piece Paul, of French Paul drama. Paul Claudel, who, by the way, in uh, 1941, I quote that in the in in chapter of the book, uh, evokes the Nazism, evokes this sort of barbarity uh, taking birth in the, in the heart of Europe, and says, it is a sort of Islamic fundamentalism. Very strangely enough, 41 in his uh, diary. So, uh, on Sarah Palin, okay, what, what, what do you want? Uh, of course, she's uh, the race today is Barack Obama against Sarah Palin. John McCain has disappeared. There is no, not even a candidacy, John McCain. It is Sarah Palin against Barack Obama, and we have just to hope that uh, this does not turn uh, to, the, to the catastrophe. The only, the real point of disagreement is nevertheless about liberalism. I do believe that uh, you can turn it the way you want. There is a part, a real part, of the inheritage of the left which is linked to liberalism. Liberalism is not only Wall Street, uh, the tycoons of, uh, of the big uh, companies and so on. Liberalism is Delacroix. Liberalism is Gavroche. Liberalism is La Commune, La Commune de Paris had the flag of liberalism. <coughs> they, they praised the liberalism of the press, the liberalism considered as a freedom of meeting, and so on and so on. Liberalism belongs to the tradition, to the inheritage, to the wealth of the left. And what I see today, really, and it, it is a, a this despairing tendency on the left in Europe and in America to let, to drop flat the inheritage to leave the, the, the liberalism to the right and to the, to the tycoon of, 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 uh, of um, Wall Street. And this is very strange because the same leftists, for example, when they, are, when they come to the question of nation, nation, they say, we have not to abandon the question of nation. Nation does not, be, does not belong to the right. We should wage the battle. Okay, why not? Sometimes about the flag. They say, we have to deliver to wage the battle of the flag. Okay. Strangely enough, they don't do the same about liberalism. They quit the field. They abandon the fight. And this, for me, is one of the worst symptomatic uh, signs of the period in which we live. This amputation of the progressive camp, of the, of the liberal camp, in America and in France, of this whole part of its heritage is mysterious and dramatic and deserves at least a reflection. Not, not strangely enough, might I say, not strangely enough, all the questions I got here have been 
amply covered in this conversation. But and this evening is a disaster, by the way. Really? You hoped a fight and well, a quarrel, and you had not so much. Uh, I, I believe in failure. Slavoj, <laughs> um, you want to say something very no, quickly? Really, really. Uh, you really, have 60 seconds. Really, really quickly, yes. First, I, I, maybe at the level of facts, I don't quite follow your diagnosis, because, for example, the Let's take here concretely in the United States, maybe I should take you a tour to the United States, another one, uh, what here presents itself as a radical left, yeah, a radical politically correct left. It's for me strictly a rad radicalized liberalism. What is political correctness? It's not a certain kind false, I even tend to agree with you, liberalism brought to, brought to, brought to extreme. So, Maybe, of course, it's true at the level of some debates, but basically I think that the left, the left on the contrary, perceives itself as a radicalization of, radicalization of liberalism. And even worse, it's a kind of a totally depoliticized liberalism. What I, uh, and I hope you agree here, where I, uh, where I oppose today's predominant American academic left is that instead of politics, we get legalism and moralizing. It's moralizing, horror, racism, and so on, and then legalism and the proper place for political action, for political action is disappearing. Very briefly, I will stop there. As to your point of uh, engagement and so on, no, I'm also very engaged and so on. What I only mean is the following thing, and I, if you read closely my book, I put it in this way. First, isn't it that often there is a false engagement in the sense that Okay, in what sense? Let me tell you a short story, don't be afraid. What happened to me in my psychoanalysis? As you can imagine, I talked all the time. It wasn't successful. Yeah, I, I talked all the time. Successful. Why? Because I was afraid that if I stop talking for a second, the analyst may ask me a, a truly pertinent I question. I have been feeling this all evening. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, so I my feel point like is your that analyst. often yeah. what we intellectuals engage in, all these protest activities and so on, as are, as it was very well described already by George Orwell in the late 30s. In, he said the, the left, the British liberal, okay, liberal, official socialist left, uh, uh, talks so much about change as a superstitious item, let's talk about it so that nothing will really change, how to put it. All I'm saying is that sometimes when, with your apparent even critical activity, you keep things going on, the truly subversive thing is not to be violent, to do nothing. And that's what I say in the book. That maybe, maybe, it's a very modest proposal, do it, maybe, I'm much more modest than I appear here. Do we really know where we are to though? Do we even have a good theory about but, but what you, goes okay, on? But, but your reaction is not to step back. No, no to step I, back into I, thinking, I, into thinking. I, we need my, to think My reaction today. is not to step back.